Revelation chapter 6. Dustin, if you want to go ahead and put that first slide up, then we'll probably leave that one up there for a while. Revelation chapter 6. Uh, let's do the smart thing, quick word of prayer, and then we will jump right into this. Uh, Heavenly Father, as always, Lord, you wrote this, so we just pray that you would teach and we would listen to what you have to say. And just give us the wisdom and the guidance and direction, Lord, and we just trust and rely on your spirits in your name. Amen. Now, if you remember correctly, in our study here at the book of Revelation, and we've mentioned this, I think, every message, the outline for the book of Revelation is Revelation 1.19. Write the things which you have seen, chapter 1, the things that are, chapters 2 and 3, and the things that will take place after this, which started in chapter 4. But when you think of Revelation, you usually think of judgment. But Revelation 6 finally gets us to this concept of judgment tonight, and that's what we're going to get into, the seal judgments. You know, commonly known in the uh, literature as the four horsemen of the apocalypse, that type of stuff. But we're going to get into that tonight. You don't really see it presented that way in scripture, but that's the way it is presented here in the world. So this is an outline that we've kind of handed out, and you probably have a sheet very similar to this. I'm just going to put this up here just to kind of show you where we're at. You know, the way we believe and what we're going to teach out here is that the rapture happens first, which then starts out the seven-year period that is called the tribulation. Now, you see the different numbers up there, three and a half years, 1,260 days, or 42 months. The Bible refers to it all in different ways. It all means the same thing. It all means the same thing. If you figure up the math, it comes out to a 360-day year because that was what a Jewish calendar was. So three and a half years, 1,260 days, 42 months. And so you can see we're focusing on the first half of the tribulation here. The second half we'll fill in later. During this first three and a half years, you see the Antichrist rising into power. The temple's going to be rebuilt sometime. We don't know when. There's a peace treaty of this false kind of fake peace that goes on. And we're not going to get the two witnesses, the 144,000 tonight. 144,000 will come in chapter 7, and the two witnesses will come in chapter 11. But those events happen during the first half of the tribulation period. Now, sometimes we get a little confused with this. Because when you think of the tribulation, we think of this idea of the whole world literally falling apart. And it is literally falling apart. But, during the first half of the tribulation, I don't want to make it sound like it's a nice place to visit, but it's when you get to the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments that happen during the second part of the book of Revelation. That's where it gets really bad. It, it's bad tonight, but it gets really bad in that second half. Because... Once the rapture happens, the Antichrist comes on the scene, he rises into power, and you see him building his little kingdom, if you will. And this happens during that first, first three and a half years. You see in the middle there is something called the abomination of desolation. We're going to get to that later. That really is the tipping point, if you will. Once that event happens, it is all downhill after that. So we're going to leave this up here for just a little bit so we can make some references to it, and it kind of just gives you an overview of what we're going to kind of talk about. So if you remember correctly... Chapter 5, the whole purpose of chapter 5, there's, there's this scroll. The scroll has seals on it. And the only one worthy to take the scroll and open the scroll is Jesus Christ himself. What you see here tonight is this scroll being opened. We taught last week in Revelation 5 that we believe that that scroll kind of represents possibly a title deed to the earth. Jesus is coming back to reclaim the earth. I'm going to make this point animate. It's not that God was defeated and overpowered for the Satan to take the earth. When sin came into the world, God kind of stepped back and said, fine, if this is what you guys want, you reject me, this is what happens when you allow the enemy to rule the world. That's why the Bible calls Satan the god of this age, the ruler of this world. So as Jesus is coming back to reclaim the earth, which culminates in Revelation 19, the second coming of Christ, he now cleans house before it comes. And so for seven years... 
there's this tribulation. And this tribulation's rough. In fact, it says in the Gospels, if the tribulation wasn't cut short, no one would survive. Now, this is not God being angry, and he has six, 7,000 years of just a chip on his shoulder type stuff. No, that's not what it is. This is a judgment of sin that is built up for six, 7,000 years. Right now, when you and I sin, what happens? Spiritually, a lot happens. But in the world, really not a whole awful lot. Does that mean that we get nothing out of it? No. God still holds that in account. And that's either going to be taken care of through the blood of Christ or not. The problem is I know people that aren't walking with the Lord and they're living in sin and they say, well, what's the big deal? It's not like my life is bad. Right, it's not. But the scales of sin are being burdened. Well, the tribulation is where God says, now it's time to pay the piper. So let's see what happens here. First seal, Revelation 6, verse 1. It says, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, Jesus, I heard one of the four living creatures. We talked about him back in Revelation uh, chapter 4 there. When one of the four living creatures sang with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering to conquer. Now let's just stop there for a second. If you look at your sheets right here, I, I think there's a great comparison between Matthew 24 and also the seal judgments here in Revelation chapter 6. Matthew 24 is the best chapter in the Gospels to describe end times events. And you can look here in your sheets. We just made two columns. And you can kind of compare and contrast as you go through this. What happened in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus had his disciples, and they were kind of having this little powwow session. And the disciples came up to Jesus and said, Hey, what's going on here? What's going to happen? And so Jesus has this wonderful teaching that goes on in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25 where he explains all this end time stuff. So I think it's nice as we go through Revelation, let's take what Revelation says, let's take what Jesus said in Matthew 24 and 25, let's put them together and you get a really nice clear picture. So what you have here is the first seal. You got this guy on a white horse. Now what does that represent? Now some of you may say, well, that represents Christ. Well, Christ is the rider on the white horse in Revelation 19. This is a guy on a white horse in Revelation 6. This ain't Jesus. This is the Antichrist. Note how he's trying to be and act like Christ. When he's on the white horse, the white horse shows royalty. Note the idea of bow. That shows military power. But note what is missing from the bow. The arrows. A lot of people believe that this Antichrist will conquer with words, not with military might. This will be a very charismatic, a very suave man. And so he comes into the scene, and during the first three and a half years, it's the rise of the Antichrist, him building this kingdom, building this power. And so he has this bow, and he has a crown, but shows some type of authority, sometimes a kingdom, and he goes out and he conquers. But it looks like he conquers with words. We know from Daniel chapter 9 that the Antichrist will bring this false peace into Israel. I mean, think about that. Every president since what? Carter has tried to bring some type of peace to the Middle East. Now, boy, there's great photo ops. Just go online and look. And you have these wonderful pictures of the President of the United States standing in the middle, and you have whoever the Prime Minister of Israel, and then you have whatever the member of the PLO is at different signs, and they're trying to shake hands, and it looks really good, right? Oh, but it never works. And I tell you this, it's, it's never going to work. It's just never going to work. And to think that right now there's this mindset of trying to create this two-state solution, oh my goodness, don't, don't get me started on that stuff because we'll lose the rest of the evening. It just really is frustrating. It's just not going to work. Peace is not going to happen in Israel until Jesus Christ comes and rules and reigns and returns. But there's going to be a fake peace for a little bit. Because putting this all together, we know in Ezekiel 38 and 39... There's something that happens in the middle called, in this abomination of desolation called the Battle of Gog and Magog where it says that Israel is a city of unwalled villages. Now think about that for a second. Jerusalem, excuse me, is a city of unwalled villages. I, I've never been to Israel, but I know a lot about Israel when it comes to its military might and I know how the nations run. 
It is not a village or city of unwalled anything. Right? That thing is protected majorly. So for Israel to let its defenses down means that there is something that's happened in the world for them to bring this fake peace to them where they think everything's going to be okay. Well, that's what the Antichrist is going to do. And I'm getting ahead of myself here, but what happens is Israel lets its defenses down. The Antichrist says it's going to protect it. Next thing you know, Russia comes from the north. The Muslims come from the south. They come to attack Israel in the Battle of Gog and Magog. That's what's all coming up here in Revelation. But... Before that happens, you got this guy, the Antichrist, that comes on the scene, the rider on the white horse. He looks good. He sounds good. He conquers without arrows. He seems to conquer with his words. He comes on the scene. Well, what did Jesus say in Matthew 24, verse 5? Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will see many. There's false Antichrists all over the place. There's only one Antichrist. There's many false spirits of the Antichrist that try to take away glory of God. So that's the first seal that you see right there. So Antichrist is introduced. More details I've given to him in Revelation 13, which we'll get to in a few weeks. Do we have any quick questions, comments about this part before we move on to the next here? Okay. Well, after he's introduced, look at verse 3. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that peace should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. See, there's conflict over the earth. See, even though this Antichrist is coming and trying to bring this fake false peace, the world is just always at each other's throats. Always at each other's throats. Look at the reference there in Matthew 24. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There is always some type of conflict going on in the world at all times. At all times. And when you stop and you look, we've done teachings on this before. A few years ago, we did an end times teaching. And we actually went, and I can't remember what year that was. It may have been like 07 or 08. And we actually went back and added up all the casualties of war from the world and how many people die each day in armed conflict. There's just conflict and wars and fighting going on all the time. You know, we've had this spring over in uh, Africa of all these Muslim revolution. I mean, there's always this fighting and this conflict going on. Oh, it just keeps escalating and escalating. This is mankind at its best. We're always at each other's throats. You see this conflict. But what happens when there's conflict? What well, takes us to the third seal? Verse 5, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked and behold a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Do not harm the oil and the wine. Denarius is commonly referred to as a day's wage. So imagine that, a quart of wheat for a day's wage. You can go out and buy a loaf of bread on sale now for under a buck. A quart of wheat for a day's wage. Because what happens when you have conflict? Well, the result of that conflict is going to be what? Famine. That's just the way it works. You look at anything in history, when there is large-scale conflict, what happens is people are so focused on winning the war that the basic necessities of life are not there taken care of. Farmers can't go out and farm. They can't go and plant their crops because there's conflict going on. So the result of this is that there's famine all over the place. Well, Matthew 24, verse 7, there will be famines. This all lines up with each other. It all lines up. And then what's the result of conflict and the result of famine. Well, it takes us to the fourth seal, verse 7. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the four living creatures saying, Come and see. So I looked and behold a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death. And Hades followed with him, and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. Now that word pale is really an interesting word there, pale horse. It's where we get our English word chlorophyll, and it refers to a greenish, yellowish color. Do you ever remember the cartoons growing up as a kid? What happened on the cartoons anytime someone was about to get sick? Their face turns green. Well, that's what color this horse is, this greenish, yellowish color, because he represents death. The result of conflict... Result of famine equals death. Now, 
Verse 7, a fourth of the earth was killed. Now, I like simple math. I really like simple math. When I first started teaching Revelation 10, 12 years ago, they guessed the world's population was about 5 billion. I think now they say it's about 6 billion, right? 6 billion is hard for me to figure out math, so I'm just going to stick with 5 billion. Let's just be really optimistic and say that there's 1 billion Christians in the world that are going to get raptured. Right? So rapture happens, a billion people are gone like that. That leaves 4 billion people left on the earth. Well, according to Revelation 6, verses 7 and 8, a fourth of those will be killed. That means a billion people will die by what? Sword, conflict, famine, death, the beasts of the earth, a billion people. I heard one commentator say beasts of the earth. When you think of the beasts of the earth, you think of these lions and tigers jumping out from behind the rocks. I don't know, maybe it is. But he said, actually, he goes, isn't beasts of the earth, wouldn't that be interesting if beasts of the earth refers to plagues? You know, once again, put all this together. You guys are students of history. When you have conflict, after conflict, there's always famine. And what usually happens is sanitary conditions go downhill, and the world can't take care of itself. And next thing you know, you see these plagues coming in. If I remember correctly, if history serves me, it was either the Spanish-American War or the Mexican-American War. More people died from plague than they did from actual combat death because there's just the uh, situation and the conditions were so horrible and so rough. So if you think about how horrible this world is going to be, there's famines, there's wars, there's conflict, people are dying, diseases all over the place, you can see how the fourth seal could quite happen. A billion people could die. And you know as well as I do, when those billions of people die, if you can't properly take care of the dead, that just creates more problems again and again. I tell you guys, these seal judgments are rough. They're nothing compared to the trumpet and the bowl judgment. Nothing. And so what you have here is the first four seal judgments and what they are and kind of what they represent. So does anybody have any quick questions, comments about these? John. Right. Most people believe that these seal judgments are actually maybe not a succession one, but actually a buildup over time. Like the first seal, that rise of the Antichrist, he would be going on for that. The first seal would be for the first like three and a half years, if all of what I'm saying. And then so when the second seal happens, conflict, that leads to the third and the fourth. And they, they put the seal judgments almost all together as one thing. The bowl and trumpet judgments, they more look at as one followed by another followed by another. A lot of people take these first four seal judgments and they put them in that first three and a half years. So really not a time frame, if that makes sense to you. Anybody else have anything they want to say here before we go on? Marcus. Well, see, that's where it gets kind of interesting. Death is death. Hades is the abode of the dead. So it almost seems like to me as I read through this that death is coming. Well, then Hades comes back right after it, where so the dead people go. It's almost like they, they die and then they go right to their eternal resting spot there of Hades because Hades always represents the abode of the dead. So when it says death and Hades follows them, it's kind of like a package deal. They will physically die, but then also Hades represents the spiritual death that's coming with too. That's the way I kind of look at it. Because Hades, and eventually in Revelation, oh, great white throne judgment, Revelation uh, 20, I believe, it says, yeah, Revelation 20, look at verse 13. says, the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them too. So, Revelation 20, verse 13, kind of a little more detail on that. Anybody else have any other questions, comments here about the first four? Yeah, Megan. That's the way we're kind of looking at it as the Antichrist. Yep. Anybody else kind of thing? Yeah, Kathy. Well, that's an interesting question. Does that mean a fourth of the earth, that everybody that dies in those fourth of the earth are going to go to hell? Well, we know from looking at the fifth seal, verses 9 through uh, 11, let's read this real quick. When you open the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for their testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holding it true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were were completed. So we do know that believers will die in the tribulation too. Now let's make this perfectly clear here. When 
the rapture of the church happens, all believers are taken out, which then leaves all non-believers on the earth. Well, I've heard teachings before, and it's just an assumption, it's just an opinion, but I like this assumption and opinion, that they feel that there's going to be literally millions of people that get saved during the tribulation, because all this stuff is suddenly going to be happening right in front of their eyes. And so therefore, loved ones will disappear in front of them. Uh, people that you always knew were really serious about God all of a sudden will be gone. All these things will be happening right in front of them. So obviously millions of people will come to know Christ. We know that from verses 9 through 11 because they get martyred. So to answer your question, just because you get saved during the tribulation, there is, does not seem to be some type of hint here that you're protected from all the stuff that goes on. You know, if you are saved in the tribulation, well, you're still going to have a hard time finding food. There's still going to be conflict going on around you. So to answer your question, could some of those one-fourth of the world that's killed in the uh, sealed judgment of uh, 7 through 9 be believers? Yeah, they possibly could be. It's not because they did something quote-unquote bad, but the world that we live in in this tribulation period is going to be so bad that even believers will have a hard time trying to make it too. So to answer your question, yeah, it could be. It's possible because it goes back to that reference in Thessalonians about how the restraining force is then lifted. Is the Holy Spirit taken out? That's a tough one to say because it's almost like I've heard people say, well, there was no Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. That's not true. The Holy Spirit was in the Old Testament. His role in the Old Testament was different than what his role was in the New Testament. A lot of people seem to believe that in the book of Revelation, the role of the Holy Spirit is different than what his role is right now in the age of grace. So is he taken out? Well, it's not like he's taken out where it's like he ceases to be, if you follow what I'm saying. But his role does seem to change and seems to be different. I do firmly believe that when a person gets saved during the tribulation, the Holy Spirit will still indwell him. Because the Bible makes it clear you have to have the Holy Spirit to be saved. He's the sanctification. He's the seal. If you don't have the Holy Spirit in you, you're not saved. So, But it is going to be a little bit different scene because it sure seems to hint from 1 Thessalonians that that Holy Spirit, that restraining force, is lifted out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, but the thing is, I agree with what you're saying, but look here. You have the martyrs in verses 9 through 11. you got the 144,000 in verse 7. And I don't know for sure, but if you look at verse 9 in chapter 7, and after these things I looked and behold a great multitude. And you see this great multitude that came out of the tribulation there in Revelation 7. And plus later on in the book of Revelation, there's actually angels that seems to be circling proclaiming the gospel. So, you know, even if, let's just be optimistic and say, I don't know, 500 million get saved. Well, that still means 3.5 billion didn't, if you follow what I'm saying there. So I do believe that there's going to be obviously, a, a, well, I shouldn't say I believe, the Bible seems to teach there'll be a great multitude that gets saved. But the sad part is, and where is that reference at? Oh, uh, Revelation 9, verse 20. This is when I think some of the saddest verses in the Bible. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk, and they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual morality or their thefts. So you're right, John. There is a big chunk that say, we know God's doing this, and we still don't care. Mm -hmm. Now, what's that lie? See, I kind of sometimes have looked at that lie. If you look at the context here that's talking, it's the Antichrist coming into power, it's the rapture, and that they, there's a strong delusion where these people want to follow the Antichrist. And I think that's why he can build that world power, because there's going to be a strong delusion. I mean, once again, to not get into a lot of stuff here, we've seen over time, and not even you know now, but even over centuries or thousands of years, you stop and look at some of these people. Why do they follow them? We look at somebody like Hitler. If you go back and study Hitler and the Nazis, Hitler was elected into that position. 
And what happens is there's this strong delusion that kind of comes into that where people start believing what they want to believe. And I firmly believe when this Antichrist comes on the scene in verses 1 through 2, this is going to be the guy of all guys. And so when it, I think that's a good reference you bring up of them believing the lie. Well, what lie? That this is the guy that can bring peace. This is the guy that can solve all the world's problems. This is the guy that's finally going to bring the world together as one. And they believe that strong delusion and that lie. And somehow, we don't know because the Bible doesn't explain, somehow somebody in power has to explain where all these raptured people went. Something has to happen. Is that part of that strong delusion and part of that lie? I don't know. I remember watching, how many of you ever seen the old, oh, was it from the 70s movies? The, uh, what were they called? Thief in the Night? Yeah. I remember the first time I saw Thief in the Night, and I'm watching this movie, and then after the rapture happens, all these people are, are missing. Do you remember what happens? They get all the big religious leaders of the day, and they put them on TV. And they say, now listen, I know a lot of people are saying this could be the rapture, but there's no way it could be the rapture, because why? We're still here. So if it was the rapture, we wouldn't be here. That's part of that strong delusion, that lie. Nina. Uh, yeah, and, and, and Jehovah's Witnesses also have some interesting opinions on 144,000, etc., and, and it goes into anything. There's people that believe in mid-trib. There's people that believe in post-trib. I know some people that believe in, in what I call, and I'm sure there's a theological term, and I don't know it, the elevator rapture. He takes some and he goes up. Then he comes back and he takes some and he goes up. He goes back. And it's like, man, I just don't get it. I, I, I think Scripture is not trying to be difficult. I think it's supposed to be simple and straightforward, and it's a nice puzzle that when you put all the pieces together... It comes together nice. So, and I think when you put all these passages together, the Matthew 24, the seal judgments, the, you know, John's talking about Thessalonians, when you, when you put all these pieces together, it really starts to become a pretty clear picture of how it's going to actually come and go together. So, so we kind of covered the martyrs there, and I just want to say about the martyrs real quick in verses 9 through 11. It is, I, I firmly do believe we are so blessed to live in this nation where we can get together and, and worship openly here, but... In many places in the world, they, they don't have this. So we look at martyrs. Well, there's people being martyred right now. There's famine going on right now. I'm telling you right now, this is what happens every Wednesday night. I usually get out of church here Wednesday night. It's usually about 9.30, 10 o'clock, sometimes after 10 by the time I get home. And the first thing I do is I'm what? I'm hungry. So I get home, and I go open up my cupboards, and what's the first thing I say? Man, there's nothing to eat. Nothing to eat. There's, there's lots of stuff to eat. There's nothing that I want to eat. I go to the gas station. Man, ah, there's nothing to get. Nothing to get? There's, you look at a menu, ah, there's nothing I want. We, we have no idea what scarcity and famine is. And so sometimes it's tough for us to look at this, where I believe if we were teaching this lesson in different parts of the world, they would look at that and say, yeah, red horse, conflict on earth. I see that. Yeah, scarcity. I see that. Martyrdom. Yeah. I see that. We just don't. We're really blessed. This stuff is already building up. Jesus said in Matthew 24, these are the birth pains. This is that, that labor starting to develop. He says, it's coming, guys. We just are kind of in a little bubble right now where we feel very safe and very protected. And, and I encourage you tonight, go home and read Matthew 24 and get the full picture, full picture of what's really going on here. And you put all these puzzle pieces together, the Thessalonians passage, all this stuff, it really starts to come together pretty clearly. Does anybody have any final questions, comments here before we close up? We're going to have to cut off there. It's already 8 o'clock, so we'll pick it up next week. I wanted to get through uh, verses 12 through 17, but at the same time, I don't want to rush it. So we'll do uh, the sixth seal next week, um, and then uh, we'll move into chapter 7 there. So uh, 
I, I always hate saying this because I was like, oh, now we're getting into the good stuff. But when a billion people die, you can't say you're getting into the good stuff. But you're, you're getting into the heart and soul revelation where it all starts to come together and you can see these puzzle pieces on them. So I encourage you, go home and read Matthew 24. Some good homework there for you. And uh, we'll get into this next week. So let's pray here real quick. Lord, we just come to you now. Thank you for the time to be here. And Lord, I, I guess the application point that comes to my mind is if we know and believe these events are coming, Lord, help us to be lights and witnesses to those that aren't saved. Lord, we, we know what's going to happen. Lord, help that to spur us on to encourage us to be a light and a witness of those that do not know because we love them. And Lord, we do want to pray for health for Drew Hoagland. We want to pray for Jody Hathaway there. Uh, just health and healing on her. Same with Sarah Spaulding, Lord, and just Betty Bishop, and just lots of health issues going on. Colleen, as she's just recovering too from surgery. A lot of people going on, Lord, and I'm sure there's some names I forgot, but just those names come to my mind right there. Lord, in the name of Jesus, just we lift all this up in your name. Amen. You guys have a good week, and God bless.